Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information, go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. All right, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Grace Life. How are you guys doing? It is great to see you. We are on part four of a series we've been doing on spiritual, for, spiritual warfare, and we've got one more to go. That means we're going to wrap it up next week with part five. I've been saying all along throughout this series, uh, I think it's probably true with any series we do, but more so with this one. In order to get a balanced view, you need all five parts. So if you have missed one because of travel or any reason, they're online. I highly recommend that you catch the ones that you've missed. Otherwise, you may get a little bit skewed version of who has what authority and so forth. All right. So uh, just to catch us up real quickly with kind of what we've been doing in part one, we started with the idea there is a war, but the takeaway was that it was a no civilian war. We're not watching this from a distance. We are actively involved. The Bible says that every single one of us is either a prisoner or a soldier. Those are the only options. We're a prisoner or a soldier. We're not watching no civilian war. In part two, we said that God has complete authority and the enemy knows it. So that would raise the question, then why? Is there even any spiritual warfare? Well, because of the takeaway was the enemy doesn't fight fair. Truth is, he hates God, and he hates God's people, and he hates God's purposes, and and he hates anything to do with it, and so he simply is out to destroy that, and he's going to see what he can get away with no matter what. He doesn't fight fair. He doesn't follow the rules. If he followed the rules, none of this would have happened in the first place, right? He's just living out his nature, so he can do anything he wants without even having a right, or at least try to. That's a better way to say it. He can try to do anything he wants even if he doesn't have a right. So then in part three, we turned that question over and said, well, what right does the enemy have? If he is messing with us, does he have any right? And the answer was, he has every right we give him. Every time we choose our ways over God's ways, it's basically like giving him the keys to your house and saying, come in anytime you want, at least in this part of our life. What was the takeaway for that? Give him no right. Give him no right. Choose God's ways over our ways, over the world's ways. That's what we're out to do. So um, today, part four, got a special little thing we're going to talk about in just a minute. But first, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have a favorite way to veg out after a hard day's work? Everybody got something, right? If you don't have your hand raised, you're going to need counseling very, very soon, if not already. Everybody should have a way to alleviate stress. For me on Sundays, because Sunday is one of my longer days, you may be surprised by that because it ends around lunch, but I've been up early enough that I do the Hobbit thing. On Sundays, I have first breakfast and second breakfast. That's how early I'm up. I get up and I start praying, working through my notes. I have first breakfast. I come, I preach a service. I go have second breakfast. It's the only way I have energy to make it through the next two services and preach again. So by the time I get home and it has taken everything in me to concentrate that long and to speak that many times for 30 minutes and to not allow my South Carolina education to come through and the words that I choose and and to stick to my notes. And so I am mentally exhausted. And my favorite thing to do at the end of a long day on a Sunday is to sit down and watch football. Come on, anybody with me? There you go. Problem is, I'm a Panthers fan. Yeah, there you go. But hey, it's not, not the worst thing. I mean, look, there are some teams where you sit down to watch your team and you're pretty sure every single time you're going to win. 
great day, right? Then there are people like the Browns fans. There you go. I mean, you just sit down to watch TV, pretty sure you're going to lose. It's predictable. The problem with the Panthers, it's not predictable. It's like a coin flip. One year we can go to the Super Bowl, the next year we can't win a game. One day we're doing great, and the next day we're not doing so well. So one of those days, I was basically coin flipping, wondering what this is going to be. It was the beginning of the series, either week one or week two. I don't remember which one exactly. Sit down to try and rest a little bit. Pretty early in the game, one of our star players, Luke Keekley, gets hurt. Gets a concussion, and he's going out for a while. And for those of you who don't know anything about football or whatever, Luke Keekley is the guy who runs our defense. He is the man. He is not only our best defender, he is most arguably the best defender in the NFL. He was the rookie of the year as a defender, and he's quite often the player of the year as a defender. He makes life miserable for the other people. And, and so here's what happened. When he went down, the person calling the game that day happened to be a quarterback who had played against him, Tony Romo, for anybody who cares. And Tony Romo begins making the comments, man, if he doesn't come back, this is going to be very bad for the Panthers. Obviously, didn't need him to say that. But here's what he says. He says, because when we would play against him, he would see how we lined up, and he knew what we were going to do before we did it. If we tried to trick play, it didn't trick him at all. He was always there to stop whatever we were trying to do. He's one of the worst people to play against, right? This is what a quarterback is saying about Luke Keekley. Now you're saying, why are you telling me this? Because today's message is about making you the Luke Keekley of spiritual warfare. Who's ready for that? See, this thing is very simple. The enemy lines up. He's got a simple playbook. If you see what's coming, you shouldn't take the bait. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us why we shouldn't take the bait. And here's the very simple thought, is that Satan might not outwit us because we are not unaware of his schemes. We should know the enemy's playbook. We should know what he's up to. And the truth is, though many of us don't know, that's what we want to talk about today. Today I'm going to give you a copy of the enemy's playbook. Who wants that? Who wants it? Good. Here we go. I'm going to walk you through six things the enemy does to wage war against us. Now, many of you have decided to become note takers with your phone. I hope that's working for you and you're actually going back and looking at those. I'm going to do you a favor today. I'm going to put all six things on the screen at once at the end so you can save your note-taking with your phone till the very last time. Everybody good with that? All right, here we go. The first thing that the enemy tries to do, his first play, is to remove truth. He wants to take truth out. See, Jesus described him when he said, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Matter of fact, when he lies... He is simply speaking out of his own character, for he is a liar. Don't expect it to be true. Don't expect it to even be right. No, because he is a liar. He's the father of lies. Everything that he is after is about deception and confusion. And if we go back to the very beginning, that's when it started, and he's been using the same play ever since. So he came up to Adam and Eve, and he said, did God really say that? He's after two things. Number one, he wants to make us question God's word and then attack God's character. It's all he's ever been doing as far as this goes. It's a very predictable play. You can see it coming. He came to Adam and even said, now, did, did God really say that? And when they got the answer mostly right, we won't get into that part today, but they, they got it mostly right. They came close enough that he said, okay, let me move on to this. Let me attack God's character. Well, you know why God said that? Because he just doesn't want what's good for you. He knows if you do this, then that will happen. So you really can't trust God. 
And for thousands of years, he's been trying to get humanity to question God's word. And he'll come and say things like, well, you know, this has been disproved in a recent study, although that may not be true. Or he'll say things like, well, you know, it was actually written down through men, so you really can't trust that. There's a lot of reason for you to trust God's word. And for any reason you decide to pick a few parts and actually try to live by them, then he's going to show up and say, well, you know why God wrote that part? Because he didn't have your best in mind. He just wanted to keep you down. He just wanted to give you some rules. He just wanted to take away your fun. He's either out to say, we can't trust this, make us question God's word, or to attack his character once we have done that. He wants you to believe that what God says is not true. He wants you to believe things about God that are not true. If we doubt what God has said, then he's going to have the victory. He wants you to believe things about you that are not true. He wants you to be deceived about the very purpose of life. He wants you confused about the things that we should value the most. You see, here's the bottom line. You are God's prized creation. God loves you. When God created the world, he didn't do it so that he'd have an empty planet and an empty earth just to look at. No, he created it for us, specifically designed for us. And we are the only part of his creation that is made in his image that he was willing to send his son to give his life for. Think about that. But how often does the enemy whisper things in our ears that are so contrary to what I just said that lines up with God's word? He says things like, well, you know, God could never forgive that. Well, God could love some people, but not you. Well, you know, God made a lot of people well, but you, have you looked in the mirror? I mean, come on, we've all been to middle school where people just start saying mean things. And we listen to the whisper of the enemy. Oh, your nose is too long. Your nose is too short. You're not tall enough. You're whatever. And the enemy begins to attack God's prized creation. If he can just make us believe anything. Here's the bottom line. He wants you to believe whatever he says over whatever God says. That's all he is after. And if we start listening to those little things and we look in the mirror and go, you're right. I'm ugly. I'm not smart enough. I'll never be good enough. You're right, God could never love me. Okay, I know God forgave me when I first asked him, but then I kept sinning, and then I did some of these things that I'm ashamed of, so you're right, God couldn't. And see, what happens is it's so easy for us to get pulled into believing lies and to getting confused about which way is up, which way is right, which way is down. I mean, it's just so easy to get lost in this world. How are we going to know what to do? It's to find truth. Truth comes with Jesus. You know what Jesus said? He said, I am the truth. I am the truth. He didn't say, I'll I'll write the truth in a memo and send it to you after I'm gone. He didn't say, hey, that Sermon on the Mount was pretty good. It had a lot of truth in it. Do some of it. No, he said, I am the truth. And so when we abide in him, we abide in the truth. And so when Satan comes and he whispers in your ear, hey, nobody could love you. Well, that's funny because this morning Jesus said he loved me a lot. You see, when we get close to Jesus, we are in the truth. And then some Christians, again, because there's a lot of confusion, a lot of deception, the enemy's out to remove truth, people even get confused about where does Jesus fit in? They'll ask a question like, well, is that something Jesus said or is that another part of the Bible? And all I can say is that question came from Satan himself. Because Jesus is the one who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? And Jesus is described in here as being the very word of God in the flesh. Jesus is the fulfillment of this, not a contradiction to any part of it. 
And if you ever around anyone who says Jesus is only good with some of this, walk away and walk away fast because that's the enemy using number one on you right there, trying to remove truth from your life. But if we will get close to Jesus every moment of every day, when we're thinking things, when the enemy begins to whisper things about God, about God's nature, about God's creation, you, when he's saying things, if you can just, Jesus, I need your help. I need truth. I need you to tell me what you really think about that. You can go to this and say, God, what do you really say about me? What do you really say about your creation? What do you really say about you? But if he gets away with removing truth, then typically his second play works pretty well, and that's to inspire fear. The Bible says that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. It's the enemy that is out to give us a spirit of fear. You see, he wants us to be afraid of circumstances in this world. And well, to be honest, it's almost like he's got a good point, doesn't he? I mean, look, you, you might go out to a movie premiere and, and be killed. You might just go to a public event and it could get shot up and, and, and you could actually be attacked just for the color of your skin. It seems like we should be afraid of the circumstances in this world because they are pretty evil, right? But what he's really after is making us more afraid of him and his plans than God's ability to protect us and to do good for us. We shouldn't be afraid. He wants us to be afraid that God's not there with you in the midst of that. He wants you to be afraid that God won't actually protect you if you were to be in a situation. See, this is where parts two and part three get summed up. And this is really important, the reason we need a balanced view of this. Because in part two, we talked about how God has complete authority. You see, those evil things are not in charge of the day you die. God is. Now, I realize that raises some questions that need to be answered in another series. But here in part two, we said God has complete authority. In part three, we said the only authority the enemy have is what we give to him. And so this is when these two, the rubber meet the road. If the enemy is out to inspire fear, if we can hold on to one piece of truth, if you're going to quote anything today, you want to tweet something, this is it. You only need to fear Satan when you don't fear God. You only need to fear Satan when you don't fear God. As long as God is the one you worship, as long as God is the one you trust, as long as God is the one you obey, the enemy's got nothing. Nothing. And he can do nothing outside of what God allows. You don't need to fear Satan or what he can do unless you've stopped fearing God. Because as we talked about last week, God turns us over to the fruit of our ways, which sometimes includes the school of how God, uh, Satan wants to run the world and to learn that God's ways were better. But as long as we fear God, Satan's got nothing. Great way to destroy that play. His third trick that he's got up his sleeve is to bring division. To bring division. You know what? It turns out Satan listened to Jesus better than we do. Ouch. Come on, somebody. I'll prove it to you. Here's what Jesus said. We don't seem to take it seriously, but the devil built a whole play around it. Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. But yet, it doesn't take you long to be able to find an offended Christian who doesn't like another one. It won't take you far before you will find a critical, judgmental Christian who has something bad to say about another one. You don't have to go very far at all to find a prideful Christian who simply thinks they are better than one of the others. And all of these bring division between us but see the bible says i appeal to you brothers by the name of our lord jesus christ that you agree that you agree there would be no divisions among you 
no divisions, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me that there is quarreling among you. But is Christ divided? How could he be divided? Could Jesus be divided? No, but we're the body of Christ on planet Earth. And when we're divided, somehow we've created something that shouldn't be. Christ is divided. How can that be? That should never happen. Well, it happens like this. We take an offense. We get offended. Somebody comes and says something to you they shouldn't say. And you say, well, I'll tell you what, that's just not right. I can't believe you're treating me like that. I'll forgive you if you say you're sorry. Well, I'll pray about forgiving you if you say you're sorry. Come on, y'all with me? You know, and we just hold on to an offense. We see somebody coming, we turn the other way, walk down the other hallway. They sit on the right-hand side of the auditorium. You sit on the left-hand side of the auditorium because we can't be around people who would do such sinful things and mean things and offend us so much. But God tells us to forgive. And he says that there's nothing any of us could do to each other that would be any worse than what we've done to him, and yet he forgave us. How can we be offended? How can we be critical and judgmental? How can we make opinions and thoughts and decisions about other people and to say there's something wrong with that? Now, look, I know you guys never do this. I'm just going to give you an example from other churches when I travel because you, you guys would never do this. But, you know, I've, I've heard some people will stand there in the middle of worship and think, who picked this dumb song? That worship leader must be an idiot. That line's not even in the Bible. It's kind of hokey sounding, too. I don't understand what's going on with them. We need a better worship leader around here. There's something wrong with that guy. And, and what, look at that singer. What is she wearing? Somebody needs to get her a mama that tells her she shouldn't dress like that when she leaves. Y'all, right? Yeah, I mean, y'all never thought that way? Y'all, y'all do that stuff? There's no division in your mind when you stand there and worship, right? None of those prideful thoughts. Well, since that doesn't bother us, let's go on to number four. Maybe we need to watch out more for number four. The enemy loves to take prisoners. Take prisoners. You see, he simply wants us trapped. He wants us stuck, preferably in the kingdom of darkness. But this is where a lot of Christians would say, according to the Bible, I've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun, so I'm no longer trapped, Jimmy. I'm good to go. Well, here's the thing. You may not be trapped in the kingdom of darkness, but you can be very, very stuck right where you are in the kingdom of God because your prison can look like something else. See, some of us have prisons called habits. We've got things that are not life-giving. They're actually life-taking, and we keep doing them over and over and over again. We've got things that we know God would like for us to change. He's spoken to us about it. We've even journaled about it. We've even told a friend about it at one point, but we still do it. It's a habit. We've just got habits we can't break despite our best efforts. For some of us, we'd go as far as to actually have something in our lives that could be labeled an addiction. And truthfully, at this point, we've reached a place where we can't get free on our own. And we're going to need some outside help, maybe outside help with humans, but definitely outside help with Jesus. We're going to need something to get free of something that now has a power over us. It's a prison that holds us. Many of us, our prison is our stronghold. It's the the way we think and the way we process, the way we perceive the world and people around us. It's the attitudes we have toward them. And, And you know the reason it's so difficult to get free of those is because we don't see them. It's what rules our mind. And if we could see them, well, then they wouldn't rule our mind in the first place. And we don't realize that we're even dealing with them. How about this one? A prison that we all spend some time in is a wounded soul. See, unfortunately, every single one of us has a wounded soul. There's not a person ever born outside of Jesus. There's not any of the rest of us ever born, no matter how good your parents were, no matter how many boundaries they put around the way you were raised, no matter what Christian school they sent you to, no matter what, at some point, someone has done something that hurt your soul. 
Your parents may have been the most loving in the world, and then it was a coach who said you weren't good enough to start. You were lucky that you even got a place on the team. Maybe your parents weren't awesome, and you had a mom who said you'll never measure up, or you had a dad who never said he loves you. Whatever the story is, none of us can say that we are without a wounded soul. And what the enemy would love is if we would respond to the world around us out of that wounded soul, and guess what? We're trapped. We are trapped. If everything someone says goes through that hurt, if everything we want goes through that hurt, if everything we think about God goes through that hurt, if everything the enemy says reinforces that hurt, we are stuck and we are prisoners. Maybe it's oppression. Maybe it's depression. The list could go on. The truth is I could do this list till every one of you crawls under the chair and we miss lunch. So we're just going to stop the list at this point. See, the enemy understands this potato chip commercial. I don't know. Some of you have been watching TV. Potato chip says, you bet you can't eat just one. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Bet you can't eat just one. The enemy knows it. That's why he says, please eat one. Go ahead. Hey, don't worry about this. Don't worry about the calorie chart on the back. Just ignore that. Just take one. Just taste one. It'll be okay. If you can just get a little, you'll be in prison. But James 1.14 tells us that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then when that desire has conceived, it'll give birth to sin. And when that sin fully is grown, it brings forth death. Best illustration I think I can give you at this point is flypaper. Anybody ever used flypaper to catch flies in your house? My family and I had a minor catastrophe recently. You know, fathers, somebody's got to be able to understand my pain here. You ever tried to get a six-person family in a minivan and off on vacation? Right? How much stuff are you bringing? You can't, no, 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 put your bed back. You can't bring your bed. They've got mattresses where we're going. I mean, it seems like that. We, we got on vacation one time and opened up a suitcase and there was nothing in it but stuffed animals. Okay, so this is the way our family packs. So you got to check every bag, got to get it in the van, got to make sure everything fits in the van. The van's got to have gas in it, got to wash the van, got to clean the windshield because I'm a little OCD and if we get down the street and there's a spot, we're turning around because we got to clean the windshield. I can't look at a spot all the way to the beach, okay? So anyway, got a lot on your mind. Got to make sure that everything's going well. Everybody's got a device that is fully charged and will get all the way to the beach because the last thing you want are screaming children halfway. And so at some point, because you got so many things on your mind, you turn to one of your children and say, hey, before we leave, make sure you take out the trash because that won't do well here for a week. And then you get home and find out they were too busy putting stuffed animals in a suitcase and getting them in the van. And so the trash stayed there and something started growing. And now it's like Lord of the Flies has dominated our house. There are flies everywhere. I mean, into the hundreds. We feel like we have walked into some sort of demonic manifestation. True story. I'm not even making this up. So I go down to Home Depot and I buy several things because I was taking no chances. But one of them were these little sticky, uh, uh, what am I, uh, flypaper things, sticky flypaper things. They can put them on all the windows because they like to buzz around doors and windows. And so I put them on all the windows I could. It was the most fun. Our kids were counting. They were keeping up with it. Hey, Daddy, we got eight. Woo, Daddy, we got ten. Oh, come on. They'd be in the living room. Daddy, we got four in here, six in that room. It's got me. They were just having a blast. And these little flies would come up, and they'd little uh, sniff around, and they'd go, oh, this looks good. And then they're like, yeah, we got another one. It was, I mean, we were like cheering this thing on. It was kind of fun. Maybe a little morbid, but it was okay. And then there was one. There was one. He kind of did his little thing. He's kind of buzzing around. I'm like, oh, come on, man. Go, 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 go. And he gets right to the edge, and he's thinking, I'll just kind of see what this is all about. And he sticks one foot. He thinks he's going to get away. 
the funniest thing watching this little fly. He's only got one foot on the fly paper, and the rest of him is going, never got him off, never helped him off. He stayed there till he was dead. And you see, if you'd go back to number one to remove truth, the enemy would say to you, this is a bunch of rules. It, it exists to make your life miserable. God doesn't want you to become like him. God doesn't want you to enjoy life. God wants to take away everything that is pleasurable to humanity. Removing truth. Because the truth is, God says, I love you enough to tell you, don't even stick one foot on the flypaper. Because he's out to take prisoners. Fifth thing he's doing is leading a rebellion. And unlike Star Wars, you don't want to be on this one. See, the simple truth is he wants you to turn against God. After all, he did. After all, he did. And he wants us to follow him instead of following Jesus. He wants us to choose our own ways instead of God's ways. And as we learned in part three, our ways aren't just mere sin. They are rebellion against God himself. They're saying, I want what I want over what you want. I'm going to share a verse with you. That's a, it's a tough verse. I'm just going to admit that up front. The Bible says, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness, meaning you're going to do what you want no matter what God says. Stubbornness is the same as iniquity and idolatry. So in order for this verse to really make sense, we have to understand it's comparing rebellion and stubbornness and doing your want to these other things like witchcraft and iniquity and idolatry. We need to look at those and say, what are they? So I did a little word study, and all of those elevate the idea of this. One thing, it takes God off of his throne in someone's life, and it takes self-will and puts it in God's place. All three of those are about elevating self-will. What you want above God is the one who deserves to be worshipped. Witchcraft is a little bit stronger because it says you are willing to elevate your self-will and to accomplish your self-will at the expense of others. That you will even manipulate people and use them for the purpose of your self-will, whatever you want. Well, God says your rebellion and your stubbornness, your choosing to do that, in my eyes, is the same as witchcraft. It's the same as idolatry, except you're the idol. You are what you worship, which leads us perfectly to number six, because his sixth and last play is to still worship, to still worship. It's all he's ever been after. It's what he's always been trying to do. The Bible says that humanity exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. It's once again what we've always been doing. Are you catching a pattern? It's what we've always been doing. It's what he's always been doing. It's not complicated. He's got a six-play playbook. You see, when everything was uh, beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, there were three chief archangels, and Satan was one of them, and his job was to lead in worship. And at that point, he began to steal God's worship. It's what got him in trouble and cast down from heaven. And so ever since, all he's been after is getting what belongs to God in worship and trying to take it away from him to make sure he doesn't have it. See, the truth is, many of us would say, I don't worship Satan. I don't worship those things. I don't sing songs, go, oh, Satan, oh, Satan, right? You'd say you don't do that. But here's the thing, we worship what we value, we worship what we exalt. So we have to be very, very careful that the things we value and exalt 
are only exalted in their correct place. And what the enemy would love to do would be for us to value and exalt things above God instead of the way they deserve to be acknowledged. So some of the created things that we worship would include ourselves. We're probably first on the list of the things that we worship the most. We worship our security. We worship our recognition. We worship our comfort. We worship our accomplishments. It is all about me. I'm going to get what I need, what I want. If there's a little bit of room in there for God, I'll show up. I'll give him a little of the leftover. But right now, my career comes first. People thinking that I'm the man comes first. Me doing everything, me taking care of my family, me providing for security, me doing whatever. People saying whatever. I need that. Some of the creative things that we worship, stuff. Come on, y'all. Be an American and nod with me. We've got two words that we love more than anything else. More and better. More and better. We always want more and better. No matter what stuff we have, it is not enough or big enough. Nobody has ever gone to the TV store and said, excuse me, could you give me a new TV? The one I have is too big. Those words have only been uttered by the wife as the husband stands there like this in the TV store, right? No one else has ever said that stuff. No one has ever gone to the car dealership and said, excuse me, see that car there? Could you give me a worse one? I'm really not enjoying the heated seats in wintertime. I'm not enjoying how the Bluetooth automatically picks up my phone and continues the last song I was listening to on Spotify as I walked out the door. No, I really wish I had something that requires me to push a lot of buttons and they still don't work in the end. I really wish you could just take the shocks out. I'd like to be uncomfortable the whole way to work. You know, every pothole, I want to fill it. You know, I don't want comfort. I don't want more. I don't want better. No. Come on. There's not a thing we don't do that's not focused around that. We want to keep up with the Joneses. And we want to spend as much money on stuff as we can to a point we'll put it on our stuff before we'll put it on God's mission. Yeah, that hurt. We worship others. Come on, teenagers. How many times? I hope you endlessly hear your parents say, please, save yourself for marriage. Save yourself for what God has planned for you. I hope you never stop hearing that. But here's the problem. It really has nothing to do with physical intimacy. It has to do with worship. And the reason so many people can't defeat that is because they don't know what's going on. Here's what's going on. You're worshiping somebody else. You, for one, but most importantly, that other person. And you want their approval more than you want God's. God says, don't. They say, please, and you go with the please. The problem is it doesn't stop when you leave high school. We get older, and our boss says, I need you to do this. And you think, well, that's a little unethical, but... That's all right, I'll get a promotion, which means more money, so that means I get more money to pay off my debt. Oh, I heard a sermon about that, so God, I'm actually doing something for you, right? Yeah, we are good at rationalizing, too. That should probably be a new point. Still worship. So if we know the enemy's playbook, if we know the six things he's after, for those of you that would like to take a picture, here you go. I like how when y'all do this, you've always got me as a reminder. All right, anyway. If we know exactly what the enemy is going to attempt to do in our lives, what is the takeaway for us? Very, very simple. Don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. Everybody say that with me. Don't take the bait. It's one of the most important phrases you can learn to say to yourself. Look in the mirror and say, don't take the bait every morning. Don't take the bait. Look in the mirror, and as soon as you start hearing, 
I wish I were. No, 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 no. Don't take the bait. God created me just as I need to be. When you look at your spouse and you start a sentence that says, I wish. No, 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 no. Don't take the bait. When somebody hurts you and you say, you know what, they hurt me. I can't believe they'd do that. I have a right. No. Don't let the word I have a right come out of your mouth. Say, don't take the bait. Why is it so important not to take the bait? It's something I said in week one. I told you we'd come back to. Here's where it hits, hits ground. I told you the devil was an opportunist. This is why you can't take the bait. Because the devil can only work off of opportunities. Why is that? Thanks for asking. Well, here's the reason. Because he is not the same as God. And he doesn't have God's nature. That means he is limited. God is unlimited. He is limited. And he's limited in two key ways. First of all, he's nothing like God, so he's limited in power. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Satan cannot. Satan is not in charge. Satan is not the one that will determine the end. The only thing Satan can do is seize an opportunity, so he's looking for you to take the bait. He wants to mess with your marriage, but you've got to take the bait. He wants to mess with what you think about God's created version of you, but you've got to take the bait. He wants to give you some sort of habit that you can't break, some sort of lust in your heart that you can't walk away from. But in order for you to get that, you've got to take the bait. He's an opportunist. The second thing is that he's limited in resources. You see, we get afraid when we talk about the fact that a third of the angels fell with him. <gasps> How about this? Two-thirds didn't. For every one that he's got on his side, there's two that's got your back. Why are we afraid of him? He's got limited resources. Let me give you an analogy or a little story that will help you. There was a time in my life I used to drive really fast and get a lot of tickets. I slowed down once people in the church started passing me. Hey, Pastor. That's embarrassing. I drive a little slower now. But this was a point I was in my early 20s. I lived in Eastern Europe doing mission work. And so I was on a little trip in Hungary, the country, and uh, I was doing about 120 kilometers an hour while eating pizza and drinking soda. I was stupid and I didn't have wife and kids yet, but that's okay. So here's the point. Uh, police officers in Hungary at the time didn't have cars and they didn't just come after you. What they did is somebody would hide in a field with a little radar gun and call ahead and say, pull over such and such, they were going to speed. And, and although I knew that I was going into a town where the cops would be at, the, at the, the entrance of the town, that's just how they worked, I knew I needed to slow down, but apparently they had moved the guy with the gun out uh, a few parts of a mile. I don't know. But anyway, so I was busted. And the way they would do it, they'd have five or six police officers standing there pointing at you to pull you over, pointing at you to pull you over. So the good news is I was living in Romania, learning Romanian. I didn't know any Hungarian. So I pull over, and he comes up, and I mean, it didn't, I didn't have to know Hungarian to understand I was doing 120, and I knew that wasn't the speed limit. But I didn't have to tell him I knew that. So as he comes up, and he, he starts talking and telling us what we're doing wrong, I just, I don't understand, man. I, I don't understand. I just kept saying that over and over. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand. I knew he wanted me to pay the fee, uh, but I wasn't about to give him money. I was just going to keep saying I didn't understand. And my roommate, who understood Hungarian, well, he just lied. I don't understand. <laughs> and, and so we both just kept saying that over and over and over. So here's the, the point of the story. After he would do that for a while, walk around the car, look at something, come back and say something again and do that again and point to our passports and write down numbers and say this and say that. And he did this for like 10 minutes. Finally, his boss comes over to him and says, fool, let him go. 
my roommate spoke, I'm hearing the only way I know what he did. In the time you've been with this guy, that guy over there has already written four tickets. You are wasting your time. You are getting nothing out of him. Let the dumb American go and go write a ticket. And he let us go. See, the enemy has limited resources. He doesn't have all day to play with you if he's not going to get anything out of you. He's going to knock on your door and say, excuse me, today I'd like to offer you a little lust. And if you say no, he's going to go to your next door neighbor and say, I'd like to offer you a little lust. And if your neighbor says, okay, come on in, well, then he's good. Because he doesn't have time to keep knocking on a door that's going to get slammed in his face. He can't stand to show up and to find out you love Jesus more than you do what he's peddling. Because he doesn't have time to mess with you. All you got to do is resist the devil. James 4, 7, submit yourselves to God. That's where it begins. And then resist the devil. And he will flee. Why will he flee? Because he knows he's got nothing if you don't give him an opportunity. If you simply don't take the bait. If you simply don't take the bait. Again, this is all about making you the Luke Kigley of spiritual warfare. Last thing I want you to get today. By the way, Luke Kigley is, is supposed to be back. Any of you that didn't understand what I'm saying, come and watch the Panthers. He's number 59 on defense, and you'll watch what I'm about to describe. He lines up. He looks at exactly how they're lined up. And then he jumps up and starts running and yelling. And he'll say, hey, you get that guy, and you get that, and he's doing that. Because he sees what's coming. He knows exactly what's coming. And here's the deal. Luke Keekley has never gotten mad at the other team for what they're trying to do. Because it's what they're trying to do. Don't waste your time getting mad at the devil for being the devil. Come on. He only gets mad at his team when they're lazy, not paying attention, and take the bait. And he will jump all over them. When he says, I'll tell you what's about to come. I've seen this play. Watch out for it. And when one of them doesn't listen to him, not a good day for that guy. Stop worrying about getting mad at the enemy. And just stop taking the bait. Don't take the bait. I want to close by talking to some of you that, well, in all honesty, you may have. You may have. You see, you've maybe gone to church for a while, but you've never made Jesus your king because you've taken a bait that the enemy threw out there to say, well, you know, you can't really trust that Bible. Well, you, you can't really trust God. Uh, I mean, look at what's happened in your life. God could never love you. God could never forgive you. Oh, you know, you don't need that religion thing. Whatever. I don't know what the bait has been, but up until this point, you've had whatever reason and every reason to say, I don't want you, Jesus. Today, don't take the bait any longer. Jesus loved you so much that he gave his life. He gave his life. It's a physical life. This is not a story. This is an event in history. A man said, I will die so that you can live. And that is worthy of our surrender. If you've never done that, I want to help you do that this morning. You don't have to stand up or come down front. Right where you're seated, would you join me and pray? Say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me and now want to live for you. I thank you for your love, for your mercy, and your forgiveness. And my simple prayer today is that you give me a life of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. 
That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at gracelifechurch.com.